Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren, one of the Darts producers. We are halfway through our week looking at right-wing politics from the point of view of the left. And today we've got quite a polarizing topic. In 2021, social scientist Paige Harden wrote a book called The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. It made a case for how genetics could be used to craft egalitarian policy. Given humanity's history with eugenics and more, this was a controversial argument. In this previously released episode, our producer Mark Apollonio guest hosts. He talks to Paige as well as geneticist Joseph Graves, who critiqued the book. It is almost time for our September launch of brand new episodes of Darts and Letters. We'll be releasing new content here on the New Books Network a bit later this month. So stay tuned if you like what you hear. I'll pass the mic over to Mark. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Mark Apollonio. There was that third guy, the astronaut no one knows about, who stayed in the command module while his pals, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, got to frolic on the surface of the moon, jumping around, playing golf, getting all the glory. I have no idea what his name is. Well, there was a similar guy in the world of evolutionary biology. Everyone knows Charles Darwin, but this other guy, Alfred Russell Wallace, he came up with an incredibly similar theory to Darwin at the exact same time. In fact, to not undermine each other's big moment, they joined forces and published the first ever paper on evolutionary theory together. They were BFFs, and just like me and my friends, they grew identical beards. Darwin's the guy we know today for several reasons. One of them was that he was just better at self-promotion than Wallace. But there is a really interesting difference between the two. Darwin, he saw natural selection operating on the level of the individual. He was also a big believer in capitalism, a belief bolstered by his own evolutionary theory about competition between organisms. Wallace, he saw natural selection operating at the group level. And you probably see where I'm going with this. He was an ardent socialist. Reading this kind of thing, I often find myself wondering, is there just a biological basis, genetics, that leads someone like Charles Darwin to focus on individuals and capitalism, and leads Wallace to be a socialist who theorizes about evolution among groups? But if you wonder that kind of thing too hard, about personalities being shaped by genes, if you go too far down that road, it gets messy. The notion our biology determines who we are as people, particularly for things like our intelligence or aptitudes, it's the basis of some of the most deranged ideas around. Eugenics, 
colonialism, white supremacy, Nazism. But last fall, a book came out that argued, from a progressive standpoint, that we should, in fact, look at how our genes affect complex aspects of who we are. The book's called The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality, and it has been controversial. The author, Paige Harden, as well as the uproar sparked by the book, were profiled in The New Yorker. They faced numerous rebuttals, including in The Lancet, The Journal Evolution, and the LA Review of Books. She's faced critics who say her ideas are a benefit to the hard right. But Paige Harden, a psychologist at the University of Texas and director of the Developmental Behavior Genetics Lab, says her politics are staunchly progressive, and so are the kinds of policies her research will inform. Is genetics good for egalitarian values or bad for egalitarian values? Actually, my egalitarian values precede genetics, and there's no genetic finding that would make me say, okay, actually, we need to give up on the idea of living in a multiracial liberal democracy where people share equally in power and resources. But if you say that, if you're out here in public consistently saying, this is what I believe morally and politically, and this is what I see, and I'm trying to explain what I see as consistently as possible, you will inevitably make someone mad, and it will not be the same political team who you make mad on any given day. And that's because what we observe as is true about human development does not conform neatly to our current past or even probably our future political narratives about what we would like to be true about humans. It just doesn't work that way. Coming up, we'll hear all about the ideas from Paige Harden herself. We'll also hear from a geneticist, Joseph Graves Jr., who critiqued Harden's book in The Lancet. The main problem is how you go from knowing something about genomic variation in any group of people, and then how do you create social structures or modify social structures that somehow lead to economic and social justice? And that's the case she really doesn't make. We don't need deeply technical genetic work to get social justice done. The reception for Hardin's book has been polarizing. On the one side, you have people like economist William Darity. Darity's compared her work to climate change denialism and Holocaust denialism. On the other hand, Eric Turkheimer has said it's, quote, the most important book about behavior genetics that's ever been written, end quote. Turkheimer is a vocal progressive and a behavioral geneticist, and he was Hardin's PhD advisor. But before we get into the controversy, I wanted to learn about the book's main points. So the genetic lottery has two goals. The first is to talk about the science of studying genetic differences between people in relation to differences in how their lives go. So I talk about genetic influences on education, income, personality, socioeconomic attainments, and how do we study that? So how, as scientists, do we go about understanding which genes are associated with which human life outcomes? And then the second goal of the book is to talk about how we make sense of that information. And in particular, how do we make sense of that, those scientific results in light of social and political commitments to equality? And the reason why that goal is important is that historically, 
talking about genetic differences has been associated with political movements that are really not around human equality, that think about some humans as inferior or superior to other humans. We can think about the eugenics movement of the early 20th century. We can think about white supremacy movements today. And in light of that history and and kind of ongoing present, a lot of people find genetic research on genetic differences to be potentially threatening to their values. And so the second goal of the book is to think about, well, how can you believe in equality in a world where everyone isn't the same? We're so used as a culture, when we think about genes, to thinking about genes as destiny or biology as destiny. And if we reject that idea, which is false, and we should reject it, it's very easy for the pendulum to swing the exact opposite direction, which is that genes don't matter at all, that they're unimportant. And what I'm trying to do here is describe how do we take genes seriously as a cause, but not the cause, as contributing variation, but not as deterministic as part of the story, but not the whole story. And I I think particularly when we're talking about biology, that's very hard to keep in mind. So I think some of the criticism about the book is really interesting to read as an author because it's alleging a determinism that is quite clearly not endorsed and in fact argued against throughout the whole book. So... I think we can be curious about that. What is it about the stickiness of the idea of genetic determinism or the perceived danger of genetic determinism that results in people still seeing it, even when I'm describing quite clearly why why we should not think of genes in a deterministic frame? Hardin's book focuses on one major study that looked at the genomes of 1.1 million people. In this study, they were all white people. There are important technical reasons why studies like this focus on groups with similar ancestral backgrounds, but more broadly, there is a serious lack of diversity in genetic research. Hardin's critical of that issue, and we'll get back to it in a bit. But for this giant study of 1.1 million people, researchers explored the correlations between genetics and educational attainment, and they found an 11 to 13% correlation between your genes and how much schooling you did. In short, that means researchers found that some people have genes that, to some small degree and in competition with many other factors, work in their favor when it comes to how far they go in school. There's been a lot of debate about these results. One criticism is simply that 11 to 13% is a pretty small number. But Hardin points to research that says that family income, which is often seen as an important variable to consider, has approximately the same influence, 11%, when it comes to educational attainment. So she says, why wouldn't you consider genetics when crafting educational policy? So when I say that genes should be involved in social policy, I don't think that that means that we should be assigning interventions or assigning children to educational context on the basis of their genome. And in fact, I was quite clear about that in the book. I'm saying that as social scientists, as psychologists, as educational researchers, as sociologists, Our job in this system is to understand what causes what in human lives. Like, that's what social science is doing. And part of the reason that we justify that, like, why do we get taxpayer money? Why do we get, you know, why are universities? Is that ultimately we think that understanding is helpful towards bringing about a world in which people are better off, right? Like, 
the relationship between basic science and policy is complicated. I think there's a huge role for basic research where the policy implications are unclear. Knowledge is good for knowledge's sake. But also as a psychologist who studies children's lives, part of my responsibility is to understand, okay, well, kids from better off families do better in school. Why? Like, what are the mechanisms? What are the specific things that parents are doing? So I think that genes are relevant for social policy, not because we should be assigning social policies according to people's genotypes, but because genetics is a really fundamental part of understanding human development and that doing good science is really fundamental towards ultimately designing better social policy. It's much more indirect than I think people immediately intuit from, I don't know, from their their viewings of Gattaca. Right, but I I guess the critique, the criticism would be that it is a small enough variance that designing social policy to respond to it is going to be less effective than much simpler approaches like universality, raising standards and guaranteeing access of children from all walks of life and and, and levels of income to proper education, smaller class sizes, things like that. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things to respond to there, which is first, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think there's very good reasons to believe that universal interventions are more effective, are cheaper, require less administrative burden than targeted ones. And that's true regardless of anything that we know from genetics. So I I don't think there's anything in the book that's arguing against greater universality or greater access to sort of basic goods that we care about. And this is where I think there's a kind of a fundamental intuit, like failure of intuition that many people have about the size of other effects that we're, that we're used to caring about. I'd like for you to imagine a situation in which Every education data set or every educationally relevant data set in the United States, the variable for socioeconomic status was deleted from the data set. So colleges didn't know whether their students came from low-income families or high-income families. The educational testing service and researchers that are making uh, an effort to get rid of SAT didn't know whether SAT takers who got high scores were from high-income families versus low-income families. When you were trying to figure out whether or not a teacher or school was particularly effective in teaching math, you had no idea if they had more poor students versus rich students in their classroom. And I want you to think about how incredibly hampering that would be. That correlation is the same correlation as we get between a polygenic score and educational outcomes. You're saying the same correlation relative size. You're saying they're relatively similar in size, right? Relative size, right? The correlation between family income and test scores is the same correlation as between a polygenic score and test scores. Paige Harden mentioned polygenic scores, or PGS. In large studies called genome-wide association studies, researchers map out differences in genomes across a big population. They quantify the differences they find in each genome by giving each one a score. It's polygenic score. For example, Paige Harden has been talking about this educational attainment study. Later, you'll hear it referred to as Lee et al. after its authors. In that study, someone whose genome was calculated to have a high polygenic score was found to have a statistically greater likelihood of going farther in school 
than someone with a low polygenic score. So for me, it's like, well, if paying attention to family income, given that magnitude of a correlation, is important enough that we would find the task of understanding education in America very, very difficult if that information disappeared. And then to think about we are in that situation currently for most of what we know about genetics and education. But there are some big differences, which is the information about educational attainment that you're citing only applies yes. to white people of mm -hmm. a certain background because for a whole bunch of historical reasons, we've only done these sorts of genome-wide surveys on white people for reasons that have to do with to do with the exclusion of, of other people. Yes, 100%. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book and, you know, I think someone who's been very, a couple of people who have been very influential to my thinking about this are Alicia Martin from the Broad Institute or Sarah Tishkoff, a number of people who've written about, you know, the importance of increasing diversity and representation in genetic research. It's interesting to think about why is that important? Right. And there's kind of two levels as to why they describe that that's important. The first is, you know, kind of very basic values around inclusion, right? That, like, if we're investing money into a social enterprise such as research, biomedical research, educational research, doing it with only one portion of the population that's like also been historically privileged and advantaged and overrepresented is just wrong, full stop. But then there's a kind of a second sort of instrumental story about it, right? Which is like, it's important to have greater diversity and inclusion because to the extent that any benefits to people will be returned by having genetic information, it's inequitable and unjust for those benefits to only flow to one part of the human population, right? Like to, to just white people. So I find that argument existing alongside the argument that we shouldn't use, we shouldn't pay any attention to genetics in social science research to actually be quite a strange contradiction in terms. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's part of the overall critique is that these things are so incredibly complex. We don't know how the genes cause, the causal link between the genes existing one way or another, one allele or another, and how it affects educational attainment. We don't know how it affects different people of different backgrounds. And there is so little that's known. The idea of crafting policy out of it becomes so irredeemably complicated that it just isn't workable. Yeah. I, so again, I think there's, I sort of have two responses to that. Which is one, what do we mean by craft policy out of it? I, I guess I would like to ask you, what, what do you mean? Like, when, when, how would you, can you give me an example of the kind of policy that could exist? I mean, I know that this is hypothetical. The kind of policy that could exist that could take into account the GWAS studies on educational attainment in, in kids. So I'm not saying that, like, you know, a school or a school district or the Department of Education should be like, on the basis of Tommy and Jimmy's genomes, like this is what we should do for them. I'm saying that researchers who provide the grist for the mill, whose research ends up becoming policy, when they are trying to identify what actually works in child development, should not ignore the fact that a lot of the things that, a lot of the environments that they're studying 
are provided by the genetic relatives of kids, right? Like it's a very, very basic research point, right? For instance, if you look at aspects of, okay, so we know generally that like richer parents, their kids do better at kindergarten. What do you do with that information? Can you replicate that just by giving poorer parents money? That's one hypothesis. Is it specific behaviors that parents who are less stressed do? You have less socioeconomic stress, so you spend more time with your kids, or your kids have a more regular bedtime, or you have less punitive discipline, or you have more books in the home, or you read to them more often, or you talk to them more often, or you feed them more organic food, and you know actually they just eat less junk food and it has nothing to do with the number of books in the home. What is the specific constellation of causal ingredients that go into that relationship? It's not enough to just know that like family environment matters. Which aspects of the family environment? And how do you teach them or manipulate them for people who don't already have those? That is the really tough question. So some colleagues of mine did this lovely paper and they you know, found that like, if you look at parental behaviors that are associated with good outcomes in school for kids, it's basically like everything, right? Like cognitive stimulation and less punitive discipline and less harsh pun, you know, all of that's correlated. What's still correlated after you control for genetics? Well, not everything, just one thing, which is cognitive stimulation, right? So now, now, you, now you're an interventionist and you are surveying the literature and you're like, I'm going to do a really expensive randomized control trial and I want it to work. Like I want it to actually help kids. Do I do the old way of the scatter shot? Well, let's just pick something that wealthy parents tend to do more of and try to intervene on that and like pray that it works. Or do you actually take into account that when you've done more rigorous tests of causation by controlling for genes, some things still seem to have an environmental effect over others. It's not like now let's have a department of genotypes that like gives people education according to their DNA. It's the Department of Education is already trying things all the time, saying we're going to try to manipulate this and hope that it works. And they fail constantly because the basic science on which it's based is bad. And it's bad because it doesn't take the problem of figuring out which environments cause what in kids. And genetics is just a tool for that problem. It's like any number of tools that we have. It's a variable of analysis that you're adding to the overall mix. Yes, but it's a variable of analysis that confounds most observational science in child development and that researchers have a really hard time taking seriously because there's this like mystique around genetics that if you talk about genetics, you are like a genetic determinist. And it's like, no, it's a variable, but it's a variable that we have to control for if we wanna understand what causes what in children's lives. We're at where we're at. You have this array of critics. How do you lobby for what you just explained to me? How do you lobby for this idea that it's one variable among many? Well, so it's been really interesting to me, the response to the book, because it's been, I sort of feel like there's been two conversations happening and one in public and one in private. So the public conversation, if you look at the reviews, they've been similar in content, which is, this is too dangerous or we're not there yet. Or like, what do you mean use this for policy? And most of those reviews have come from not social scientists. So from biology or from historians or from people outside of 
my daily bread and butter as a scientist is trying to figure out like how do parents affect children's lives. Whereas the conversation with my fellow social scientists has been much less in the review space and much more in the, okay, but how do I do this? Right? Like emails from researchers being like, okay, you've convinced me. I should try to control for genetics in my studies. What's the best design to do that? What's the best way to get started? And that is the sort of thing that makes me, it kind of makes a lot of the review space sort of like, I mean, interesting, right? And like, I want to think about what the critiques are and think about like how to, how to describe this differently and what do I need to change about my own thinking. But to the extent that I, you know, like one of my core goals is to affect policy, not by changing policymakers' minds, but by changing the day-to-day practice of my fellow psychologists. I feel like that process has already kind of started in the aftermath of the book. And that's the thing that I'm actually most excited about. If I have to say like, what are the things that have come out of the book that I'm like most jazzed about? It's people being like, you've convinced me to change my research design to include siblings. <laughs> like, like that, I'm just like, okay, well, you know, you can, 10,000 people can be mad at me on Twitter, but one scientist is like using relatives in their research design. And that is pushed things in, in a new direction scientifically. And like, that makes, that makes a lot of the rest of it just noise. There's another dividing line where other progressives, I mean, that's a, a very vague term, but other people on the left critique you for genetic determinism. How do you think about that? Uh, Yeah. So I'm trying to communicate what I know within my domain of scientific expertise as clearly and accessibly as I can, while being as transparent as possible about my own moral and political values. And it turns out that if you do that, you end up with critics on both the right and the left, and you please no one. And that's because the more you know about a topic, and if you have deep scientific expertise in a topic, the facts of that topic do not neatly play on the right team. So I can say things like, in the Texas Twin Project, children who are raised in poverty show epigenetic signatures consistent with greater burden of aging and mortality-related disease. And I'm pretty convinced that it's not anything genetic, that this is their being raised in an impoverished environment is worsening their health. And people love that finding. And if I, people with my political values love that finding, right? I'm showing that poverty hurts the health of children. And I can say in the Texas Twin Project, individual differences in executive function are nearly perfectly heritable. They're as heritable as height. And they're not significantly correlated with the socioeconomic status of the child's upbringing. And people hate that finding. That's the same data set that came out of the same grant, that came out of the same lab. I'm just reporting what I observe from this group of people that I study. Does the Texas Twin Project like help progressives or does it help conservatives? There's no answer to that question. That was Paige Harden, author of The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. She is a psychology professor at the University of Texas and directs the Developmental Behavior Genetics Lab. We look at criticism to Paige's work after the break. 
You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Ren said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Joseph Graves Jr. is a geneticist at North Carolina A&T State University, where, among other things, he researches the genetics of aging in fruit flies and bacteria. He has also authored several books on genetics and ideas of race, most recently, Racism, Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions, which he co-wrote with Alan H. Goodman. And he wrote a critique of Paige Harden's book that was published in the medical journal The Lancet earlier this year. The critique is titled, Does It Really Matter If You Win or Lose the Genetic Lottery? But before we get into Graves' views on Paige Harden's ideas, I want to delve a little into his personal story. Graves is the first ever African-American evolutionary geneticist. His experiences as a black person in the U.S. and in the academy add to his scientific expertise when he weighs in on genetics and public policy. I grew up in a family that no one before had gone to college. I mean, my mother and father were born in the Jim Crow South, where there was no orientation towards providing education for persons of African descent. Um, Their lives were always at risk from lynch ropes. I grew up, you know, in a working class neighborhood in Westfield, New Jersey. No one expected me to go to college. The educational system that I was exposed to was tracked by race and class. They didn't think that, that I had any potential at all until, you know, a visiting student teacher saw me reading in the library. I was in third grade. All the other kids were reading books like Fun with Dick and Jane. And I was sitting there with a copy of Harold Lamb's book about the Crusades called Iron Men and Saints, which was a college-level textbook. And all the other teachers thought that I did things like that because I couldn't read, so I was showing out. But this teacher sat down next to me, and she said, little boy, what are you reading about? And then I proceeded to tell her the story of the First Crusade and, you know, why it was done and who my heroes were and what the results were, and she was flabbergasted. Next day, I was in all, in all advanced classes. So it was that one, that one interaction. It, was, it wasn't even an intervention. It was just a, a personal interaction. It was a personal interaction that started me, you know, gave me the opportunity to be on the path. But, of course, you know, throughout one's academic career, I mean, there are a whole bunch of people who are your allies and also who are your enemies. And, you know, I, I you know, went into a field where many of the proponents of scientific racism were prominent features in that field and spoke about my genetic inferiority in front of me and to my face. How did you handle that? Well, in some cases, I gave up. So, I mean, when I went to Oberlin College, I had an interest in astrophysics. And, you know, I took a class in advanced uh, mechanics and relativity. And it was really hard. I wasn't the only person who struggled through that class. I ended up getting a C plus in it. But on my final exam, scrawled in big red letters was, you have no talent for physics. 
you should never take another physics class at this college. Now, there was one other African-American student in the class, and he also struggled in that class. And he also got the same red note. But we were the only two people in the class because other people got C pluses too. None of them got the red notes about not having any talent for physics. Now, in his case, he went on to earn his PhD in physics. I went on to earn my PhD in evolutionary genetics, which is just as mathematical as physics is, but I had a very different experience in biology than I did in the physics department. What was the difference? The people in the biology department were supportive, which shows you how problematic this educational attainment um, metric is. For example, one of, one of the educational attainment measures is highest math class taken. Well, why is that a measure of how smart you are? Why isn't it highest course in sociology? Why isn't it highest class in African-American studies? Why is math chosen, you know, a historically Eurocentric and Euro European and East Asian dominated field? Why is that chosen as the metric of how smart you are? So I have real problems with the phenotype of educational attainment. What exactly does it mean? Joseph Graves Jr., in his Critique in the Lancet of Hardin's The Genetic Lottery, wrote, The simple fact is that greater genetic knowledge is not required to make progress towards social justice. Now, he explains why. Let's say I sequence all the kids who go to kindergarten in the United States, and I can compute their polygenic scores. How does that allow me to make educational interventions that somehow give certain kids a greater chance for success or, or give all kids a chance for success? I mean, other than you know, extreme phenotypes like people who are on the autism, schizophrenia spectrum or other things like that, you know, within the normal variation of human beings, exactly how does that, you know, how do those polygenic scores allow me to come up with more effective means of educating those kids? It still comes down to the question of what are you educating them for? We don't have a society that is premised on the notion of justice and equality. Our society is a capitalist society, which operates on the basis of competition and exclusion. So, you know, the thing that she's talking about, even if it could be done, and I would I argue it really can't, because that the notion that polygenic scores are so deterministically predictive of outcoming phenotypes is not supported by people who do work on genotype phenotype pathways in systems in which um, we can do experiments like I do and control environments like I do, and we still don't have the dramatic level of predictability that she seems to infer in her book. So given that fact, I'm still left with how does getting the genome, genomic information for all these kids, how does that allow me to provide an educational system that maximizes each of their potential? It simply doesn't. Her response from my chat with her would be, we seek to know the impact of socioeconomic status on a child's 
potential for um, educational attainment. Of course, it's not deterministic, but it's a factor. So why wouldn't we seek to know the genetic effects? Okay, so one of the things that, you know, we need to make clear is that, you know, research is a social investment. It's not free. Somebody pays for it. And generally for the kind of research that she's talking about that's paid for by the public, not by private corporations. And so if I'm going to invest my money into research, I'm going to invest it in research that actually allows me to, to make a difference, to make a change, to make the situation better. So in the case of genomic information, I do this research, I do all the sequencing, you know, I identify the call snips out of the data, and I, I can say, oh, well, there are certain groups of kids that have higher PGS predictive scores than others. So what do I do with that? Does that mean that I only offer advanced teaching tools to the kids who fall with, into the highest PGS scores? Because they're not that predictive. The work that she relies on, like the Leodal study, says that it's only 11 to 13 percent of variation in educational attainment. So that's saying that I have 11 to 13 percent chance of being right in the kids I pick using PGS scores. That means I have an 87% chance of being wrong. So why wouldn't I offer these advanced educational tools to all the kids? That's not wasting money because the, the genomics doesn't make the level of prediction that allows me to tailor educational opportunities to a specific group of kids. But now let's go back to the socioeconomic variable. Okay, which he says, okay, you know, you can get 11% of the variation in socioeconomic outcomes. What if I provided better income for their parents, gave those parents meaningful employment, made sure that those parents had decent health care, made sure that those parents had effective and affordable child care, make sure that all the kids who go to school you know, have a warm coat to wear and have food to eat in the morning. Those are all things that come from differential and socioeconomic status in the United States. So which of these interventions do you think would have the greatest impact of changing educational attainment in the United States? So when you're saying the, these two variables, one, you're saying there is an evident solution for them, and the other, we don't know what addressing that variable, genetic, the genetic variable, would look like. But not only that, how do you address that variable? In other words, knowing that you have genetic variation, right, because I do these experiments. So I can identify SNPs that are involved in all sorts of traits in bacteria and fruit flies. Back to the interruptions, my final one. SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are small differences in genes that make one person's, or fruit flies, version of a gene different than another's. Your eyes are brown, your friends are green. It's because you and your friend have different SNPs in the genes that determine eye color. Different traits involve different quantities of SNPs. Generally, the more complex the trait, the more SNPs. Sometimes in the thousands, tens of thousands, or more. I can identify SNPs that are involved in all sorts of traits in bacteria and fruit flies. I can use genetic techniques to move genetic variants into different genetic backgrounds. 
And I can show that I can now produce that phenotype in a different genetic background by using tools like CRISPR or other plasmid-based genome techniques to move traits around. I can do that in those organisms and I can, I can create those phenotypes. You can't do that in human beings. So what would you do with the genomic information? The only thing that you could potentially do, there's only two possible ways. You know, we're dealing with extremely complex phenotype here, over 1,200 SNPs from the Leodal study in 2018. Do you mind just taking a, a, a quick second and just giving me a quick definition of this educational attainment study, the EA3 study that, that you're referring to, just so that listeners know? So um, in 2018, there was a very large study of educational attainment in persons of European descent conducted by Lee et al. And there's a whole bunch of authors on the paper. And basically what they found was there were 1,271 SNPs that reached the statistical level of significance with regard to contributing to the educational attainment phenotype. So it means that if you, know, if you had a set of these SNPs, you did better in education compared to those who didn't have them. And of the uh, same 1,271 SNPs coming out of that study, they also predicted 7 to 10% of cognitive performance measured by a set of IQ tests. Now, what that tells you is that whatever these phenotypes are, each individual genetic variant is only contributing a very small percentage of the variance in the outcome. So you'd have to change thousands of them to be able to change an individual's in, you know, <laughs> educational outcome. But how do you do that? And we don't also don't know the mechanism uh, of how this genetic variation alters educational attainment. Okay, and she sort of makes the assumption in her work that these are you know, good things, such as you know, people being smarter or harder working you know, it could just as easily be bad things, such as, you know, the ability of people to be Machiavellian in social circumstances or to support the status quo or things like that, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to be, you know, indoctrinated could easily right. explain the, the, how someone goes far in educational attainment. So we're dealing with a phenotype whose function we actually don't even understand. And then you show that the genomic contributions to it are extremely complicated. So the question is now, how would you use that information to help individuals become better at educational attainment? And there's no clear pathway, in part because you don't really know, understand the mechanisms. So, for example, I mean, if, if all these SNPs where we're in, you know, specific genes that were highly expressed in neural tissue and it had something to do with, you know, connectivity in the brain or the function of specific regions of the brain, but that's not the case at all. So not understanding the mechanisms of how the genome produces the phenotype and what the phenotypes actually are makes this entire intellectual program suspect. To you, what are the implications? What are the ways that we could intervene with that information? 
One way would be if you found a number of genetic markers that were active in specific pathways having to do with specific cognitive abilities, then you could alter those, and that would be pharmacological alteration. In other words, you'd give people drugs that made their brains work more effectively for a specific thing. Now, again, I don't think that that's a society that, that we want to make, and I certainly don't think that's a society that would be headed in the, position, in the direction of greater social justice. It would be a society in which people who had the money to give their kids these pharmacological treatments, okay, their kids would end up being in the top educational attainment category. And the people that didn't have the money to do that wouldn't have those treatments. So that's not social justice. And of course, the other way is classical eugenics. <laughs> if you could identify these genetic markers then, you know, if you had a society that had a level of social control necessary to decide who marries who and who has children with who through generations, you could increase the frequency of homozygosity of these variants in these people, and they would, quote, theoretically get smarter. But we've seen where those kinds of interventions go. You write in your paper, the simple fact is that greater genetic knowledge is not required to make progress towards social justice. That's what you, you wrote in the Lancet critique of her piece. Can genetics be used for social justice? It could be, but you, one has to come up with mechanisms by which genetics would be used. And the real question is, you know, what are you trying to achieve? If what you're trying to achieve is social justice, then we don't need deeply technical genetic work to get social justice done. So I'm not opposed to new and more genetic knowledge. What I'm opposed to is making claims about genetics that don't follow. And what Hardin does in her book is she makes claims about what genomic information can do for us with regard to working towards a more just, equitable society that just don't follow. was Joseph Graves Jr. His critique of Paige Harden's book titled Does It Really Matter If You Win or Lose the Genetic Lottery was published in The Lancet earlier this year. Graves's forthcoming book, A Voice in the Wilderness, a pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems, comes out next fall. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. I'm Mark Apollonio. The lead producer of Darts and Letters is Jay Coburn. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudon. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design is by Dakota Coop. Your usual host and the show's editor is Gordon Kadic. Special thanks this week to Roland Nadler. Send us feedback. Email the show, darts at sightedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at Darts and Letters. This is a production of Cited Media. We're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. We're also supported by our patrons, patreon.com slash darts and letters to become one of them. 